we are in transition, we have to be creating new worlds, and we have to be creating them across kingdom. And if we are too attached to absolute wins and perfect outcomes, we are, we're already lost. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Book on Fire. Uh, this is Dave. And this is Janet. Hey, um, we realize that we are a little bit late with this episode coming at you, or late as far as the precedent uh, that we've set so far. We've been on um, a pretty reliable every two-week schedule, uh, and we are recording this episode on Sunday, April 14th. Uh, which is usually when episodes would come out. It's going to take a few days for me to edit and get this one ready. But it's springtime here in the mountains of North Carolina, like utterly springingly, gorgeously, exuberantly spring. And that means that uh, the pace of our life has quickened up quite a bit. For those of you who don't who don't know very much about what we do when we're not reading and talking about books. We are herbalists, and we have an herb school, a school of herbal medicine that runs from six months from mid-April to mid-October, and that is getting ready to start here in just about two days. And on top of that, we we live on a off-grid land project where we have a medicinal plant nursery and a big medicinal herb garden, and we have resident apprentices who come and live with us for the summer and who have just moved in and we've gotten settled into their accommodations and we've been potting up plants for the nursery and thinking about getting the spring garden going and doing all of this stuff. And so, uh, and so yeah, this one is coming to you a little late, but it's still, it's coming to you. And as we're nearing the end of the book that we're reading, uh, Donna Haraway staying with the trouble, these episodes, we, we're not going to promise a release schedule <laughs> for this last part because we just have to squeeze it in in between everything else as our lives get busier and busier. And if you do want to find out more about what we're doing, we are, we have social media presences and we're online. Um, the Terra Silva School is the, is the name of our herb school and our, nursery and apothecary herb outfit is called medicine county herbs i'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes to the episode in case y'all um want to track down more about what we're up to and we have a blog uh, and we have a blog called radical vitalism uh where we irregularly publish um <laughs> lots of things about herbalism and just living on the planet sharing medicinal herb knowledge and stuff too uh and sharing thoughts about what it means to be an herbalist at this time and place um so yeah, today we're talking about uh, two chapters from Staying with the Trouble, chapter six and chapter seven. Chapter six called Sewing Worlds and chapter seven called A Curious Practice. And that leaves only one chapter after today. And that's going to be uh, chapter eight. It's called The Camille Stories. Looking forward to that one. It's the only chapter that Haraway wrote fresh from scratch just for this book. Um, and it's a bit longer, it, it looks like. And so the next episode after this will be us talking about the Camille stories, chapter eight. Uh, and then, and then we'll probably do 
we're or we're planning to do one or if it gets too long maybe we would split it into two episodes of just wrap up conversation about the book as a whole whenever we can get around to getting all of those out we'll get them out um and then we'll probably take something of a break the summer we're going to be it's really busy all the way through october um but that doesn't mean there won't be any episodes uh there might be some one-offs or whatever but but uh there's a good chance that we won't tackle a new book chapter by chapter until maybe fall or something at least but we might do some articles online, or we might just read a book or talk about one of the books we've already read and just discuss it, and um, ones that we feel like are short enough to actually fit into one episode um, yeah. that we think would be useful to continue the conversation we started with this book. So we might do some of that. We'll see. Depends how much time we have for that. Yeah, so we have some some ideas about keeping the podcast going through the through the growing season. So keep us subscribed if you subscribe, and 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 uh, you'll likely see some stuff come trickling in, <laughs> or maybe more. Like we'll see. But anyway, we'll talk about all of this uh, before we sign off at the before we sign off at the end of staying with the trouble again. Um, but we just wanted to give you an idea about. Not only why we're late, but also just kind of what you can expect from here going outward. So yeah, here we are. Um, we're going to talk about, we're going to start, we're going to talk about these chapters one at a time, basically. And the first one is called Sowing Worlds, a Seed Bag for Terraforming with Earth Others. So just to give an overview of this chapter. Um, what she is talking about is drawing heavily from the work of Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin, two science fiction writers um, who are now both gone. Uh, but their work has become more relevant than ever in many people's estimation. And Haraway's very much influenced by them. Uh, a lot of this chapter has to do with storytelling and sowing seeds literally in the way of creating new worlds, but also sowing seeds in the material of thought and the matter of thought around the world so that we are telling stories as we're planting seeds to create the next world in this time of transition when there is a lot of upheaval and um, ground being overturned. It can, while they're in the midst of all this destruction, there is also a possibility of fertility and a place to plant the seeds of future mm-hmm. ways of being, especially across kingdom and collaborating with all kinds of beings. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that's basically what this chapter is about. We need to sow a lot of new seeds, as it were, of new worlds. And some of those seeds, hopefully will take and flourish right. and become the new worlds that we need right. to continue flourishing. Yes. Yeah, my first impression when I started reading this chapter was that it's kind of a return a return to form or a return to a form of Haraway typewriting that we'd been enjoying in like say the first three chapters of the book. Uh that for the chapters we talked about in the last episode it's kind of a divergence from this. Here, we are back with that Haraway that kind of free associates ideas and jumps from one context to the next and creates these very like evocatively beautiful in her own way 
poetic in her own like wild wordplay um nerdy kind of way <laughs> um science fiction type of way passages that I've come to love from her and so a lot of this chapter sewing world was just like I was just breathing in the atmosphere of Donna Haraway you know and I was just really just enjoying it even just on that level uh so much and like right in the very first paragraph of the chapter we have this passage I'm just going to read there's a few sentences I'm just going to read some of these for you so that we can so that we can have them here together we need a hardy soiled kind of wisdom instructed by companion species of the myriad Terran kingdoms in all their place times we need to reseed our souls and our home worlds in order to flourish again or maybe just for the first time on a vulnerable planet that is not yet murdered we need not just reseeding but also reinoculating with all the fermenting fomenting and nutrient fixing associates that seeds need to thrive recuperation is still possible but only in multi-species alliance across the killing divisions of nature culture and technology and of organism language and machine yeah she goes on janet's going to talk more about this but yeah ursula k le guin and octavia butler figure heavily in here she 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 brings back ursula k le guin's carrier bag theory of storytelling which is something that we touched on in uh when we t discussed chapter 2 a few weeks ago if you were here uh with us when we talked about that that might be familiar to you um and you might even recognize some of the language in this passage which i also underlined it matters what stories we tell to tell other stories with it matters what concepts we think to think other concepts with it matters where how ouroboros swallows its tail again that's how worlding gets on with itself in dragon time these are such simple and difficult koans let us see what kind of get they spawn <laughs> i don't think i have the time or the understanding to go into exactly the way that haraway uses the word get because she uses it as a noun let's see what kind of get they spawn um so, yeah, I just wanted to throw out there a couple of the very nice Haraway poetic passages um, that tickled my fancy as I was going through the introduction to this paragraph. But uh, after these paragraphs here of introductory kind of getting us warmed up, she goes quickly back into Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction. Can we share the link to that carrier bag? Yeah, you can find a scan PDF, or I found a scan PDF of uh, carrier bag theory um, on the internet, and I can include a link to that in the show notes. That would be great, because it's... It's a very short essay. It's short, and it's really good. Ursula K. Le Guin's just such an amazing writer, and it's so well-crafted and tight um, while it's talking about really big things, you know? Mm. She's so good at it. Mm -hmm. Just, like, really pithy and together. Mm -hmm. um, but basically... To, we talked a little bit about the carrier bag theory earlier in one of the episodes, but to remind us all what we're talking about, um, the carrier bag theory is somewhat in opposition to the prick tale or to the hero's tale. That is the traditional trope in a lot of world literature, but also in how we conceive of 
the stories we tell, even not in literary forms, but also in just how the world works and who is important. Mm-hmm. So, and what actually counts as a meaningful action? Yes. So, or an effective action. The yeah. hero's story or the prick tale. There is usually a powerful male figure who, even if he doesn't know his own power, the entire story hinges on his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and he may be going on a heroic quest. There, he may have a sword, or maybe his uh, sword is his pen, and his writing and his words and his thoughts are the important movers of the mm-hmm. story. Um, so the word, the weapon, the tool, I think, right. was a list. Of, it's yeah, in there. Yeah. yeah. And then the tool. But often, uh, or it could be something used to tame nature. Or something cutting. Yeah. Something penetrative. Right. You know, right, right, right. Um, something like that. Yeah. Like it kind of, sometimes it has these phallic type right. of resonances, like a sword. Whatever. Right. Which is why they call them but the prick tail. Right. But Le Guin is countering that concept with the carrier bag theory of history and art, which is that the idea that civilization or just human culture from the very beginning of the tribe and the gathering of our species in small groups has always depended largely on vessels, either bags or receptacles that can hold things, whether it's gatherings of root nuts and roots or fish like a net to gather fish up, um, all of the different means of sustenance that are not... Uh, seeds. And seeds, too, mm-hmm. right, to hold seeds, that are not necessarily like the heroic hunting quest, you know? And remind she's reminding us that culture, and by that I mean what humans create together in groups, mm-hmm. um, has evolved and developed largely with these unsung uh, heroes of our right. of, of our life ways, which are the receptacles, you know, and they don't get as much of a story mm-hmm. uh, or there's not as much of a place for them in our narratives. And Ursula K. Le Guin is saying it is time for us to remember the important place of these receptacles and to create new ways of understanding the world based around them as a way to address the damage done by focusing so much on the hero's tale or the prick tale. I want to bring in the word gathering here right. too, mm-hmm. because which has come up in several of our episodes and I can remember in evolutionary momentum and all this kind of stuff. It's like a theme in this book and, you know, because you gather things in a net, a basket, right. a bag, mm-hmm. right? And so part of what Le-, Le Guin is proposing is that it might be, it might be more important what you gather than what you sever or at least it's if if not more important it's at least important (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. we should have a carrier bag type of storytelling that's about gathering right and not just about heroic carving out a path Mm -hmm. you know yeah and i think that haraway is bringing this theory up again uh with octavia butler and ursula k Le Guin in mind as people who were writing carrier bag stories for our futures. And part of what she's getting at here is uh, 
so she's referring largely to Octavia Butler's work, um, the parable series, the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents. And in those, Olamina, the protagonist, is traveling in a sort of post-disaster, major disaster, post-apocalyptic world that has a striking similarity to, to, to contemporary American culture. Um, but she is traveling and gathering people and gathering community and sowing seeds for creating a world that Mm -hmm. is life-giving and sustaining. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's one version of this carrier bag story. But then also, um, which, oh, I should add here that part of what's important and which Haraway draws attention to is that Butler is not creating a utopian vision of the world in this way that we think about utopia um, originally, which is like where everything is perfect. It's a messy utopic drive that Alamina has. And sometimes then there's some difficult things about that world, not just the world that they live in, but the world they create uh, together in her community Earthseed. Right. Um, But in Butler's work, there is the acknowledgement that we have to create flourishing, vibrant community and life ways in the wake of destruct- ongoing destruction and surrounded by destruction and scarcity. Mm-hmm. And Butler And is- you kind of... Sorry. If I can interject, like, and you gather what you need along the way. Right, totally. I'm thinking about the parable books. It's like, you know, it's very... She's on the road. She's gathering people, but also gathering kind of skills, skills and right. wisdom, mm-hmm. insight. Right. And then, yeah, like her first project, Acorn, ends up breaking apart and it kind of ends up failing, quote unquote, or something. But but it's just another step on right. this learning process towards evolving with the now and staying with... Right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, not to go too much into the parable books, but... Which you should read and we can link to those that. too if you haven't already read them. Yeah. I think they're pretty important to read right now. People cite 1984 all the time as an important text for right now, but really I think Octavia Butler's work is much more relevant to what we're dealing with Mm -hmm. uh, in the political climate with the growing xenophobia and the response to climate chaos worldwide. Mm -hmm. Um, So the other book that, uh, well, she refers to a few pieces of Le Guin's work, but she refers to the world for word for world is forest, which is a novel about a planet of forest dwelling hominids who uh, Terrans humans from Earth have uh, invaded and are very much go- doing the colonial process of extraction, exploitation, murderous brutality that was done all over the world during the era, the initial era of co- colonization that is ongoing. Um, and in that book, the forest-dwelling people far outnumber the colonizers that came from Earth, and they have to learn to fight back. And the story is as much about the way their culture is forever changed by that, by the work they have to do to protect their planet and their forest life, as it is about um, the conflict between colonizers and colonized peoples. And I don't want to say too much about it, but it's a really amazing story. And it's one in which the outcome is ambivalent. 
um, and it's messy and nothing's perfect and there is compromise and acceptance of change with mutual influence across species. Part of the point is, even when there can be positive outcomes or positive, possibly positive futures with both of these powerful writers' works, there is often ambivalence and uncertainty and also outcomes that maybe you wouldn't have necessarily been rooting for, but they just kind of emerge from the circumstances. And mm -hmm. both of them are amazing at writing with just an open end and, and you're kind of just like what happens within the text has to happen. It feels like it just kind of like there's this emergence of like, of course, this is what would have happened. And you feel like they might have been as surprised as you when uh, they were writing it, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, that might not be true at all. I mean, both of them have extensive notes on their work, so they might have actually have planned everything out ahead of time. But that's not the impression I've got from some interviews I've read. All of this is to say that uh, I've been thinking a lot about the way that we talk about how we're going to get out of all this and where we are as a species and with life on the planet, which is what this book is about. And there is definitely a heavy emphasis in the overculture and also a lot of our subcultures on figuring out a heroic path to recuperation or to what it's saving what is left of life on Earth. And... Haraway is drawing on these two writers to explain that, or to highlight that the hero's tale is what got us into this, and the hero's tale is not going to get us out of this. There's not going to be some eccentric techno dude who's going to actually figure out the one thing that's going to save everybody. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be one revolution that's going to save everybody. There's not going to be one overarching idea or political framework that's going to save everybody. Right. Um, this is going to be a multifaceted conflict. And the point of this chapter is that we are in transition. We have to be creating new worlds and we have to be creating them across kingdom. And if we are too attached to absolute wins and perfect outcomes, we are, we're already lost because there is not a chance of a perfect outcome at this point. Um, I wrote a blog piece about this recently that we're going to link to about cynicism and how appealing cynicism is right now. But the point of her bringing up these two writers is to point to people who are writing about the messiness of our future and how we it will be one of collaboration if there is to be a future. Mm -hmm. But it may not be one that feels pure and totally... I don't know. Or done. Done. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. It'll never be done. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I encourage you all to read uh, Janet's blog post. It's really good. Um, I'm sure you have cynics in your lives. And you might be one. You have cynics <laughs> maybe in yourselves. Um, and, and her essay addresses um, all of those pathways to and from cynicism in a way that's really helpful to think with and that you can use when you're talking to others even about the state of the world. Thanks. Going back to Haraway's text on page 120, we have Terran spawn all, 
We are sidewinding as well as arboreal kindred, blown get, in infected and seedy generation after generation, blowsy kind after blowsy kind. On the subject of planting seeds, uh, she then says, planting seeds requires medium, soil, matter, mutter, mother. I think uh, this is pretty interesting in the chapter. She comes back a few times to this kind of wordplay around the soil, the matter, mutter, mother. And if you're sowing seeds, then the soil or the medium is what the seed goes into. Mm -hmm. and the medium in which it sprouts and grows. Mm -hmm. uh, and Haraway is pretty, it's pretty interesting in here how she, in this carrier bag way of storytelling that she's doing throughout this chapter that she's both talking about and exemplifying, it's always unclear to me whether, whether um, she's gathering seeds to sow or whether she's gathering stories and perspectives that get composted into the medium which will be used to grow seeds. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's not one or the other. I don't think that there's an answer. I think that she's delighting in not being strict about what's being sown and what's the compost. You know, uh, the carrier bag is about all of it. Mm -hmm. And sowing worlds, you know, what's going to be a seed and what's the fertile ground, mm -hmm. you know, is something that is not something that's very easily said. And no. also, um, I you just reminded me of this way that she's talking about seed and soil that might not be totally apparent to everyone, but often in a lot of the overcultures narrative, going back to Sumeria, even around earth and planting, it has often been a story of domination and the soil and the earth has been almost like this inert object that you put life into by putting the seed into it. Mm -hmm. And she is always drawing attention to the fact that soil is a living medium that already has many kingdoms involved of life that has fungal life that has bacterial life um, and moving on up through other kinds of animals and plants. And there are many kingdoms represented in that soil that is not dead is alive yeah. and is part of the process. And we are not making it grow food or grow medicine. Oh, right. You know, it is already this living, vibrant medium that we are working with. Right. Right. And so bringing soil back to life to acknowledge its livingness mm. is part of what she's doing this whole time that might not always stand out yeah. to everyone. Well, yeah, because part of the prick tale, mm -hmm. part of the prick tale, too, is that the earth is the feminine mother receptive medium. There's air quotes happening and, this, by the way. And that the seed is the male thing. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, men in this culture talk about their seed or whatever, as if like, it's the thing that is the masculine contribution right. to growth, mm -hmm. you know, and she's definitely undermining all of that. In fact, she says right here in the feminist SF mode, matter is never mare, quote unquote, mare medium to the quote, informing seed mm -hmm. rather mixed in Tara's carrier bag. Kin and Get have a much richer Congress for worlding. Right. 
Matter is a powerful, mindfully bodied word, the matrix and generatrix of things. But yeah, so this is, it's exactly what Janet's saying. There's, 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 there's a richness to matter, mutter, mother, generatrix, and matrix that is not just receptacle. And it's not inert. It's not inert. It's not just a medium. It's not a mere medium. You know? mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, this like radical ambiguity to go back to what I was saying before about like, what's the medium and what's the seed, like what's the compost and what's the germ, like all of this stuff is I think really cool mm-hmm. in the way that she goes about this gathering and about this composting. Um, cause yeah, that's what this chapter is all about. And she goes on to just throw more things in the bag. You know, she's basically like, let's talk about carrier bag theory and now watch me throw shit in the bag. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what goes in the bag is Le Guin, Octavia Butler, um, a few things from Le Guin. And then she actually references uh, a story of Le Guin's called The Author of the Acacia Seeds and Other Extracts from the Journal of the Association of Therolinguistics. That is a story about um, scientists trying to attempting to read writing that an ant put on some acacia seeds that they found. And these are scientists in a sci-fi world that are able to decipher the writing of animals. And they're trying to figure out what kind of message this ant that was found decapitated next to these acacia seeds had left on the acacia seeds. Um, But without going into that story, Haraway just kind of throws that in the bag and uses it as a springboard to talk about both acacias and ants mm-hmm. and ant acacia relationships in a f- in just a few pretty dense pages at the end of the chapter she goes into all of this and so acacias just really quickly i'm not going to hit all of the details but acacia is a very large genus of plants in the legume, the bean family, that grow. I don't think acacias are, they're not really diversely represented in North America, although I believe there are some native acacias in the drylands. However, there is something like 1,500 species of acacia worldwide, and they're very prominent in Australia, in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, especially those continents. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, desert pla- more desert places. I mean, they're in the Gobi Desert too. They're a little more dry land adapted. Yeah. And Haraway, she spends a minute kind of reveling in all the ways that acacias have become important and or become iconic in one way or another. For instance, there's like a food ingredient called gum Arabic mm-hmm. that is in that all of us have consumed in some product or another that comes from acacia trees. And you can make ink with it. You can make ink with it. They, uh, acacia honey is a really prized honey that will not crystallize. Postage stamps. Were made from gum Arabic. Yeah. Um, people eat, uh, the seeds, the pods, uh, the shoots, um, and all of this of the acacias. And then as members of the legume family, uh, acacias also fix nitrogen into the soil, which means that they help other plants grow. Mm-hmm. They're also in partnership with giraffes <laughs> who browse on the leafy tops of the large acacias that grow in the savannas in Africa. They create the flat-topped tree 
savanna landscape that um she like jokingly says is um uh prized by human photographers and tourist enterprises <laughs> uh so you know so she's kind of reeling in acacia into the story in all of these facets especially in that list is ways that they intersect with humans um and giraffes and other plants but uh and then there are also as a subset of acacia relatings and acacia partnerships, there are a lot of different examples of relationships between various acacia species and various ant species. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, there are certain acacias that their seeds have what are called um, elasosomes on them, which are sugary appendages that ants like to gobble up and use for food. And so they're basically, they lure the ants to the seed and the ant desiring to bring home this like sugary food packet grabs the seed and drags it into the ant nest, which also just happens to be the ideal germination Mm -hmm. site for the acacia seed, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's like a symbiosis there where the ants get fed by the acacia seeds and the acacias get germinated by the ants. And the ants would also keep out um, other creatures who would come to get the actual seed and eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's more. She goes in, she, she talks about ants that bore into the acacia bark, um, and create these channels. Like there's a a few, she just kind of scatters. Well, in quick succession, she just kind of fires off these ant acacia relationships. (laughs) Um, and really, you know, um, she's not really going anywhere in particular with mm-hmm. this right because we're not trying to get there remember mm-hmm. that part <laughs> um uh but she's it seems to me like she's in this part she's gathering mm-hmm. you know she's she's throwing examples of relationships into her carrier bag right um and talking about the diversity of worlds and worldings that go on just around this one genus of tree mm-hmm. um that can also be really invasive and harmful in places in the world, depending on where it is, because it definitely moved around with colonizers as well. Yeah. Um, so it's not one that it's always a pretty story. And that's what part of what she's talking about is yeah. understanding the connections between different species and across kingdom, but also looking at individuals around the world in that context and how are they contributing good or bad to the situation that they live in there, you know? Um, and not that you can say a wholly good or wholly bad, but is one more disruptive? Is it um, hurting other plants and animals? Or is one actually contributing a lot by its presence? Right, right. And it's all of these observations and all of these stories that we need to gather mm-hmm. in order to, and these are my words, like in order to form the compost Right. That will grow the new worlds. Right. You no, know, it's sort of, this is the meaning that I'm getting mm-hmm. from the way this chapter is proceeding, sort of. Um, and it's on the patterns of these relationships that we notice in the world that we will sow new worlds. So, yeah, that's basically how this is going from kind of a theoretical introduction to the carrier bag theory um, and some some exemplars of that in writing and in storytelling and then veering off, as Haraway likes to, into um, scientific observation of animals and plants and the associations in biology 
uh, as a way of filling the carrier bag up, you know. And then towards the end, in the second to last paragraph, ends with, uh, with Le Guin, I am committed to the finicky, disruptive details of good stories that don't know how to finish. Good stories reach into rich pasts to sustain thick presents to keep the story going for those who come after. Emma Goldman's understanding of anarchist love and rage makes sense in the worlds of ants and acacias. These companion species are a prompt to shaggy dog stories, growls, bites, whelps, games, snufflings, and all. Symbiogenesis is not a synonym for the good, but for becoming with each other in responsibility. <laughs> she ends the chapter in true to form <laughs> in yeah. a very Haraway fashion. Okay, on to chapter seven. Chapter seven is called A Curious Practice, and it is another short chapter that is basically a tribute to Haraway's uh, friend and colleague, Vincian Despray. Go ahead and laugh at me for mangling um, that person's name that time and every other time that I might say the word Despret, but her last name is D-E-S-P-R-E-T, and this is a Belgian uh, philosopher and ethologist, which is a person who studies animal behavior. She's a philosopher, psychologist, and ethologist who, um, if I'm not mistaken, is Belgian, and was uh, a student of, or at least a mentee of Isabel Stengers, who's another person who's come up in this book, another colleague of Donna Haraway's. It seems like the three of them are maybe close in some way, at least, you know, academically. Um, Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall at that dinner party? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because these are all extremely fascinating people. And I, Vincian Despray has come up, uh, the name has come up in the book previous to this, but I don't think we've talked about her yet on the podcast. And this is a whole chapter devoted to her and and what Haraway is calling her her curious practice and there's wordplay there in the word curious because it's uh it's not only curious as in um kind of odd or or as in kind of odd but also it's a practice of curiosity mm -hmm. and she's giving Despray a lot of credit for um for pursuing her investigations of animals and people and people in a way that um doesn't jump to conclusions in a way that allows animals and people that she's studying and writing about to uh, to to surprise us, to not give us easy answers, mm -hmm. uh, to elicit just further surprise and mystery. Um, this is a lot of what I see happening in this chapter. Is is um, and it's a little bit hard to. It's a little bit hard to follow or to get what she's talking about if you're not familiar with this person's work already. Mm -hmm. I actually went and read an article or two, um, extracurricular 
reading about Vincian Desprez so that I would have a better context, because throughout the chapter, Haraway refers to these different uh, things that Desprez is known for in her publications that, as if you would already know mm-hmm. what she's talking about. Um, and they're all, and they're all like, before we talk about any of those examples at all, um, they're all along the way. I just want to make sure, and we'll come back to this at the end, but but the main gist that I'm getting is that Desprey is someone who is more of like an interlocutor with her subjects as far as opening up lines of sort of conversation mm-hmm. that, and here again we have the theme of like, don't exactly finish up tidily or reach a conclusion you know scientists a lot of times it's like they study animals in order to propose a theory that's like this is why the animal is doing this across the species like i have interpreted what the meaning of this mating behavior is in this bird you know and um and i and part of what haraway likes about despray is that she refuses to draw conclusions like that. Mm -hmm. And one thing is that she refuses to let an individual animal stand for the whole species. Right. You know, so that's a very fundamental thing, right? You can see an animal doing something, um, and you, you might have a tendency to generalize that this is a feature of the species. Mm -hmm. It might just be a feature of that individual or that individual and, or a group, like a group of animals yeah. are different from each other. Like I remember in Barry Lopez's of Wolves and Men, which is mm-hmm. such an awesome book. Um, he talks about how wolf packs differ and they each have their own personality. And like one wolf pack, because the members have their own personalities, you yeah. know. And so to generalize about wolves yeah, is uh, precarious. Yeah. In these ways, like it's not going to be total. You can do a little of that sometimes, but it really varies pack to pack and individual to individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a form of investigation that's more about about um, forming relationships and seeing what comes out of those relationships mm-hmm. uh, than in um, trying to map the world in some kind of reductionist scientific way. Another thing that I thought was interesting as far as Desprey's uh, kind of origin story, you might say, is that because she comes from a background in philosophy, mm-hmm. there is there is a history of philosophers talking about animals. Mm-hmm. And like, for instance, if you've read Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, let's say, which is a book that a lot of non-philosophers have read, like I've read, um, and Janet has read. There's a chapter on wolves. There's a chapter that has a lot to do with rats. That's uh, Those are the two examples that come off the top of my head. And um, part of Desprey's kind of, uh, I guess, critique of this is like to say that these animals are they're not talking about real animals mm-hmm. like the animals that you go out in the world and find. They're talking about a kind of like storied animal of mythology, like a, almost like a mythological, it's a human conception of what rat means. It's something that's, that's v- very culturally constructed. Or it could be like meta wolf. Yeah. You know, it's right. 
more like that almost than even mythic. So she proceeds from this question of like, what if philosophers talked about actual animals, you know, went into the wild and like watched actual animals. And so that's part of what she does. Uh, and there's this jumping off point, another thing or another jumping off point for her that uh, is talked about often in relation to her, and Haraway talks about it um, in this chapter too, or like refers to it obliquely. And it has to do with one morning when Despray was sitting in her backyard garden, and she heard a blackbird singing. Despray heard the song of the blackbird, and to her, the bird was singing as if the importance of the world was in its song. And that the blackbird knew what importance meant, and that it was teaching Despray something about importance. And this is one of the episodes in her life that draws her into further conversation and relationship with animals. And I think that, like, I love this story on a couple of different levels, mm -hmm. you know, and one of them is, and she actually talks about this, I think, in some of her work, because the sort of knee-jerk, the knee-jerk reaction to hearing that from a lot of people might be, you're anthropomorphizing this bird. Right. You know, to say mm -hmm. that the bird has a concept of importance like we do, that it, and that it de desires to communicate it or to sing the nature of importance. Um, and I really feel like there's this way in which, uh, where people can learn about the concept of anthropomorphization, mm -hmm. which is like the fallacy of imputing human characteristics onto non-human animals as a fallacy, you know, because not all animals are human and, you know, we shouldn't be projecting our human traits onto them. Mm -hmm. And it be and it can become this kind of knee-jerk, like, sort of gotcha, hey, you're anthropomorphizing, you know, type thing. Um, and Despray, who's like a trained ethologist and a philosopher of science, and she's not the only one who would say this, says back to that, we're not that special. Like, how do you know this is anthropomorphism? It could just as easily be the case that humans are exhibiting animal traits mm -hmm. or are adopting the traits of animals, right? It gets back to the whole question of human exceptionalism. Totally. We have these concepts and we have these capacities and we should assume that the other critters don't. And... She's not only transgressing against this assumption, but but she's also pointing out how kind of chauvinist that is, mm -hmm. you know. So it's interesting. Like a lot of us have learned, like not to anthropomorphize. Like right. that's actually good etiquette, mm -hmm. you know. But there's another, you know, and, and there's maybe a grain of truth in there or something. But then there's also this larger point, which is that we are animals. We are continuous with the animal world, mm -hmm. and in the interest of dismantling human exceptionalism, we shouldn't be so hasty to condemn 
people describing a continuity of affect and cognition and emotion and just world experience between us and the other critters. Right. Yeah, and I think that when I when you talk to me about all of this background with her, um, I think it's really interesting, especially because uh, where she comes up in this chapter partially, well, it's all about her, but the part that, uh, well, Haraway refers to her display studies of uh, Israeli ornithologist Amats Zahavi, and she seems to see within his work or his study of the Arabian babblers a positive example of scientific inquiry. I don't know. I haven't read her work on him, and I need to study that because I'm interested. Um, but I was really surprised to see him come up in this chapter, uh, partially, as definitely as a positive example, because along what Dave was talking about, about the anthropomorphizing and that being this like absolute fallacy in science with animals, um, I think of Zahavi as someone who would have that opinion. Uh, because I just read this other book called The Evolution of Beauty by Richard O. Prum, which is a pretty popular science book right now, so you may have heard of it. Uh, the subtitle is How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. Um, and briefly, to summarize how evolutionary biology explains things, explains how different animals act and why they act, um, Darwin, when he first created his On the Origin of the Species, felt like it had a huge gap that did not explain a lot of animal behavior and a lot of animal phylogenetic characteristics, especially the wide, wide range of behaviors and plumage in birds and sexual differences specifically. Mm -hmm. And he, it's, there's really funny quotes from this period in his life where he would be like, every time I think of the peacock, I am nauseous because there was no good <laughs> explanation for, or at, for what had happened to male peacocks or how male peacocks had evolved. Um, that could be explained through fitness adaptation. It does not make a peacock more fit to have this giant cumbersome tail that it only uses during courtship. You know, mm -hmm. so why does it have it? And so many sexual differences actually seem to be not very adaptive or helpful in the survival of the species mm -hmm. when they, you look at them. And in fact, up until now that there's actually math and mathematical analysis of all this, they are not adaptive. It mm -hmm. can be proven that these characteristics of are not adaptive, whether it's the elaborate bowers of the bower bird or the giant tail of the peacock or the elaborate collaborative mating rituals of other birds um, or primates even. So back then in Darwin's time, he wrote a book about mate selection and how that shapes the world. And that was immediately rejected because of, um, for a lot of reasons, and Prum goes into those, and it's pretty interesting to hear about Victorian sexism and how that influenced the rejection of Darwin's theory of mate selection. But he did posit another theory to fill in the gaps for what fitness adaptation did not work for. As I mentioned, 
recently in the past few decades, it has been, or maybe it's even been 50 years at this point, but recently in evolutionary biology, there has been scientific evidence through mathematical analysis that uh, adaptation doesn't explain everything. And there are some gaps here. And so people have been struggling to, within that, the people who are very attached to everything making sense and nature having a rhyme and reason and every single characteristic being actually adaptive or it wouldn't exist, um, have been struggling to explain why there are all these ways of being in animals that are not, that don't seem to help with species adaptation. Um, so the point of all this is in the evolution of beauty, Zahavi comes up as a uh, evolutionary biologist who is interested in protecting the idea that every trait is adaptive. And he came up with a theory called the handicap principle, which explains phylogenetic and behavioral characteristics in male birds that seem non-adaptive. And his theory is that a giant tail or a really cumbersome um, mating display or behavior show the more difficult it is, the more it shows how strong you are as an individual, which would make you prove that you have better genes. This is obviously, I think, to most people, (laughs) doesn't totally make sense. And sure enough, mathematically, this principle does not work out. So Zahavi was proven wrong mathematically, but his idea about the handicap principle that uh, the more cumbersome a courtship display or ritual, the more the stronger your genes are, has not actually played out to be true, but it's still held as the gold standard in evolutionary biology. Um, and so it's interesting to me that Despray went and studied him and found was sympathetic with his work because it sounds like these Arabian babblers are really amazing. They have a ton of altruistic behaviors. Um, They have elaborate collaborative dancing rituals that don't seem to be tied to courtship and mating that don't seem to have a reproductive advantage. And he seems to be studying these birds in a way and setting up his experiments in a way to show that that all of these behaviors, whether they are caring for another's young or dancing with other birds, is actually proving competitive advantage. And to me, I'm seeing in there, like, that sounds like he's just trying to prove that everything's about fitness, that he's saying that it can't be possible that these birds just developed a collaborative and mutually nourishing culture together, because that would be anthropomorphic to him, probably. Mm -hmm. But why is that, why is it more possible that it's individual competition driving this and not collaboration and a really special life way of these Arabian babblers that they've developed together? Right. It's unclear to me from just reading what's in Haraway's book and I didn't read enough of Despre's other stuff to figure this out, but whether Despre is a fan of Zahavi's conclusions, mm-hmm. she definitely seems to like something about his methods. Right. And it seems like that is what is getting most of the attention. What she or what Haraway think of his conclusions would be an interesting thing to know. Right. Because everything that you just said, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I didn't read The Evolution of Beauty, but for sure I, I hear all of that and how his conclusions would be problematic. But there's a way in which part of what is important for Despray is situations where the person who's supposed to be investigating a subject 
becomes transformed mm -hmm. by their work. Right. And the Blackbird thing is an example of that. She was like, I was transformed. She says, I was transformed by the song of the Blackbird and its expression of importance. It had a transformational effect, which sent me off in a different direction. You know, So she's looking for relationships where, and specifically scientists is what she studied a lot. Mm -hmm. Oh, but she also studies these farmers, uh, yeah, right? Breeders. That, oh, breeders who breed pigs. Um, and also, it's not just scientists, but people who relate with animals, mm -hmm. whether it's, yeah, as breeders, as farmers, as scientists who study them. And, and pigeon fanciers. Pigeon fanciers who, who, who are in turn transformed mm -hmm. by their experience with the animals. And I feel like she sees that in Zahavi. Right. That somehow. makes sense. Sure. Um, and I think that's most of what she's writing about. Uh, but thanks for bringing in all of that other stuff. It's super fascinating about the mate selection. Yeah. It's and just yeah, ironic and that very... it's that thing that happens where like when you're reading something, suddenly all these other I thought I was reading a couple pretty different books because Staying with the Trouble is very different from the evolution of beauty. And somehow they end up colliding in this way that makes me think harder about both of them, you know, in that uh -huh. cool way that reading like oh, opens yeah. your life to different ideas and they seem to kind of start having a synchronicity to them, you know. It's always cool whenever books line up intersect anyway yeah, totally. yeah that's that's really neat always really generative um so let's see what else do we want to say about this chapter and what and what Despray is doing yeah she's she's an explorer of human animal relations and human animal communication and in a way that holds open possibilities mm -hmm. A lot of what Haraway is stressing in this chapter is sort of like in the last chapter, but the non-finitude, the very, like, the partial, not grandiose, not drawing conclusions. It's almost like we're still in the contrast between the prick tail and the carrier bag here, even though she doesn't use that language in this chapter at all, because, mm. because she's very much aligning Despray with... Um, with the kind of work, the kind of working and being in the world that is not like trying to answer the big questions mm -hmm. or, you know, trying to finally make things right. Or it's all about c creating fertile connections that we don't know what they will generate. Mm -hmm. And with Despray, it's these connections that are connections with animals, between humans and animals. What can we learn from animals? There's a book by Vincent Despray, translated into English, I saw when I was doing my research, I think it's called, What Would Animals Say If We Asked the Right Questions? Mm. This is very much, you know, this is very on the theme. It's like, we can have these conversations, we can engage with non-human animals, we can engage with critters if we open ourselves in the right ways. Mm -hmm. And I think... And Haraway, for Haraway, Despray is a model of how we can be this radically open and radically non-conclusive. And I think that um, probably something we're going to have to save for another time that Dave brought up with me earlier today is, is that enough of a goal? And, mm, yeah, you know, is with how much there is at stake, is this a time for just rambling curiosity and writing and thinking? You know, not that we have to have one way or the other. 
but right is it enough well and it's almost yeah so all right so for for y'all <laughs> for the listeners this is something that we're 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 not going to totally unpack this now but i want to flag this thought for later and i think i would like to come back to it in one of our wrap up episodes and that is yeah what janet's talking about um where towards the end of this chapter especially there's this sense in which like Janet said, not that we have to have one or the other, but Haraway almost seems to be arguing for one over the other. Mm-hmm. And if you lost us, what we're talking about <laughs> is she seems to be arguing for this, um, for this like radical exploratory relationship building, becoming with, sympoietic all of these things, but this very non-conclusive, like non-goal-oriented, really. It seems like Um, it. uh, Kind of making relationships and sowing worlds, which I'm totally gaga about. Like, I love that. But the step that she is always seems to... To me, it's like very close to, to going beyond saying that that's a good thing, but saying... She's contrasting it with goal-oriented activity. There's all of this stuff. I could read you some quotes in here, but about like doing something for a ca- for a noble cause, you know, and how that's the way we should not be thinking. Right. And there's a book by Isabel Stengers and Vincent Despray called "Women Who Make a Fuss," which I think is a great title. Which uh, it kind of riffs off of Virginia Woolf, which is one of my favorite authors in a way, you know, and Haraway says making a fuss is not making a revolution, mm-hmm. but it's in this way where she's not just, she doesn't seem to just be using it so that you know better what she's talking about. She seems to be saying, I'm all about this fuss making more than like this revolution making mm-hmm. or something. And uh, so my question is, I have lots of questions, but one of them is like, don't we have room for both? Right. And don't the world making, sowing seeds, sympoietic becoming with, isn't that generative of the possibilities of the kinds of alliances and partnerships that could build to something transformative Mm -hmm. that actually transforms the world? Right. Uh, in the direction of greater flourishing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I call the revolution. Right. <laughs> you know, there there will be some ruptures, there will be some, you know, the old order, the power structures, all of this stuff will be undermined or give way in some way. I mean, who knows what it would look like. But that but that the work that Haraway is always talking about doing for me is complementary mm-hmm. to the goal-oriented? I mean, I'm not sure if it's exactly goal-oriented, but the, like, it's part of the longing to see big change happen. Mm -hmm. You know, to make the, like, not like the revolution as in we're going to take over the White House and, like, take over the government, but just, like, have a systemic transformation of what's going on. From the ground up. Yeah, and she, and she's, in in lots of ways in here, she's in subtly and not-so-subtly ways basically saying... The way I'm reading this is like, don't think about that. 
Right. That's not what we should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. We should just be staying, like the book's called Staying with the Trouble, it's just, just focusing on the now, the unfoldings of the relationships that we can build without really thinking about where it's headed mm -hmm. or what we want out right. of it. And this feels very different than the Haraway of the 1980s and 90s. Mm -hmm. And it also feels like something I just want to have more conversation around because yeah. I don't want to throw out, I don't want to throw out the lowercase r revolution. Right. So this, that's the conversation I want to flag. I just want to add to that, that um, I perceive part of what is going on with her, and I would also say Le Guin in some cases, because I actually want to read a quote with, from Le Guin at the end, but part of what I see going on with her preference for the carrier bag approach, for the preference for this sort of curious practice that is being talked about in this piece, um, is that she is saying the prick tale, the hero's tale, the human-centered, male-centered tale is what got us into this mess, and we're not going to be able to use that to get out of this. Yeah. And I see that at the same time that I have to yeah. say, yeah. guess what? There's a bunch of pricks, guns, swords, <laughs> and pens pointed at us right now. And as the growing chaos continues, and another world is at stake uh, when we're facing a very powerful and organized force who are armed and interested in defining what that space looks like, mm -hmm. can we only use the carrier bag to be able to sow that world in that climate? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even... No, see, here we're starting to have the conversation. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, like, I'll say here that just because there's guns and knives aimed at us, you know, by the cops and the military and stuff, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that we need to aim the same kinds of weapons back at them sure necessarily but there is like i do think that we i tend to think that we should have an analysis of what is opposed right. to what we're trying to do oh sure and that we should we're not living in a vacuum and yeah we're not it's not just this damaged world that we get to re-terraform to our liking experimentally with this world sewing because there's actually opposition to us being able to do that. And even and the opposition is going is not going anywhere anytime soon. You know, so there if we don't think about what our opponents are doing and actively try to undermine the things that give them power, and that doesn't mean I don't mean with bombs or something, it can be with gardens. Right. Uh, you know, but I think that that's just part of my... That, to me, feels like an essential part of our thinking. We have to talk about right. what is dominating us yeah. and what is keeping us from sowing the worlds we want to sow. Right. And I think that this is a good time to point out that seeds themselves, literal seeds, mm -hmm. are very much a site of contention and a battleground. You know, the biggest seed bank in the world is where they're collecting seeds in a climate-secure place in Scandinavia, I don't remember which country, is owned by Monsanto and the Gates Foundation. And so people are already planning for the future. Well, I should say corporations, even though they're treated as people, they are not people. Um, yeah. They are already preparing for the coming scarcity. And if Monsanto continues in the way of seed sharing that it has been up until now, this isn't going to look very good for most people. So seeds themselves are a battleground. They are not neutral. We should all be saving seeds, collecting seeds, 
and at the same time that we build a fertile materia mater mother yeah to place to grow those seeds in and i mean that in every, every sense of the word yeah so if you have thoughts about this you can always write us at the book on fire podcast at gmail.com or participate in our discussion forum on Facebook, the book on fire podcast. Also, I'm very excited to retake up this and other conversations when we do our wrap up episodes uh, in another month or so. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about here and there's no easy answers, but this is part of our ongoing thoughts as we navigate through the pages of this book. I have a bonus quote. Go get it. All right, this is Ursula K. Le Guin in the book of called No Time to Spare, which is a collection of her blog pieces she wrote in her 80s, so they're so good. This article is called Utopia Yin, Utopia Yang, and she's talking about yin ways of life and yang ways of life, and I'm not going to go into too much of what that might look like, but the end of the essay says, Is a yin utopia a contradiction in terms, since all familiar utopias rely on control to make them work, and yin does not control? Yet it is a great power. How does it work? I can only guess. My guess is that the kind of thinking we are at last beginning to do about how to change the goals of human domination and unlimited growth to those of human adaptability and long-term survival is a shift from yang to yin, and so involves acceptance of impermanence and imperfection, a patience with uncertainty and the makeshift, a friendship with water, darkness, and the earth. And so here with Le Guin, I feel like she's kind of saying we can have goals and be receptive and uncertain and changing. Yeah. We can work to create the yin utopia. Yeah. Thanks for being with us, y'all. See you guys in a couple weeks. (laughs) Just started raining. If it's springtime where you are, like it is for us, happy spring. Get out there and get it while you can. Yeah. Love you guys. Bye-bye.